Um, we're going to jump right in this morning to everything. Our, our passage for this morning is 1 John 3. We're continuing our study through 1 John. We're going to be in verses 11 to 18 this morning. And this message is a hard one for me. I, when, when John assigned me this passage, uh, at first I thought, oh, this is a slam dunk. Love one another. How easy is that? Um, it's an easy concept. But what exactly is love as God designed love? What does it mean to love someone? And in today's world, we hear words like affirm a lot. Is love to affirm? Where, what is that? And so as we kind of search what God means with his creation of love, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. God, as we approach your perfect and inerrant word this morning, we humble ourselves, soften our hearts, clear our cluttered minds. Lord, impress upon us that we are not editors picking, picking and choosing what we prefer, but they, that we are mere obedient proclaimers, expositing your words and commands. May our posture be one of humility. May your word speak clearly and powerfully through an imperfect servant. Give us understanding in Christ's name. Amen. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. I can hear the Gen X people reciting the next line. If you're not fortunate enough to be part of the greatest generation God has ever put on this earth, that is a Gen X classic from the 1980s. It has actually been 38 years since Foreigner released that slow dance couple skater power ballad that we grew up with. And the church that Capshaw has been here 102 years, and I guarantee you I'm the first person to open with Foreigner. So... <laughs> But this is just an isolated example I kind of used to get your attention. Uh, we as a society, we want to be loved. We want to know love. We want to feel love. And so because of that, our artists and our creators, they become obsessed with the concept. Our, our authors write about love. Our artists paint and sculpt about love. Our songwriters sing about love. What is it? How can I get it? Why don't I have it? How did I lose it? I think that God has instilled within each person a deep desire to know and to experience love. And love do dominates the subject matter of, of the things we listen to and the things we watch. Why can't this be love? Van Halen. Is this love? White Snake. Good love. Poison. Love song. Tesla. In and out of love. Bon Jovi. Stone in Love, Journey. A few more that aren't from 1980s. I know, eye-rolling going on. Lovely, Billie Eilish, Love Me, Drake. Love's Train, Silk Sonic, joined by Bruno Mars. And of course, Love Story by Taylor Swift, over on what used to be the country music charts. And I'm certainly not condoning or recommending all of these songs. In fact, some of them I downright loathe. But 
What I'm trying to demonstrate is this obsession we have with the concept, the mystery of love. So because of that, I named this message this morning, Counterfeit Love, that, that love that is gifted by God to be perverted by the sin of man. Our passage for today will be 1 John 3, 11 through 18. The words for the scriptures today will appear on the screen behind me, but if you do not have a Bible, I know that we give those away at the welcome desk out there. We'd be more than happy to give you. And today and today only, I am giving away two ESV study Bibles. They are right back there. They have great notes and things like that. Um, I liberated them from Pastor Brandon's office this morning before he came in. So he would love for you to have one. So they're right back there. But let's dive into our passage. The Word of God reads, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Amen. You can hear the message to love flow through this passage. John here is an old man, a seasoned citizen, if you will, between, somewhere between 80 and a hundred years old. And he had been a 20-something following Jesus around, right? Listening to him teach. Um, saying ill-advised things and being rebuked. Something I identify with from my 20s. and Someone that Jesus corrected. Someone that Jesus loved. And now he's this mature man near the end of his life writing to this network of churches. And of all the things... He could be talking to them about or instructing them in. He's giving them this message to love. And he speaks sharply, right? His message is cutting, proclaiming that an, an unloving person is not a child of God. He speaks of the failings of believers. He speaks of the dangers of nominal believers, those that are believers in name only or in culture, but they have no real relationship to Jesus. Pastor Adam says there's those that believe in Jesus and there's those that know Jesus. He says also we must be aware of those opposed to God's love. And throughout this epistle, he proclaims God's will and he gives a positive and negative example. He states God's command and then he gives an, uh, an example of fleshly failure and opposition to God's will. And he doesn't move in a linear mode. He doesn't move straight through from one thing to the next to the next. But rather in a spiraling motion, he, he repeats ideas and he comes back to them for context. 
Uh, MacArthur says of this very passage, you can really feel John trying to screw this message to love into the brain. The reader will not forget what is said earlier because he's going to come back to some of those same ideas. So following the apostles' lead this morning, we are going to do the same thing. So we're going to provide positive and negative examples. Uh, We're going to talk about what love is, and then we are going to talk about what love is not. And our points this morning... Um, turned out to be a little long, so they're going to be on two slides. So if you need the points later, let me know, and I'll email them to you. Just give me your email before you leave. Um, but I provided an alliteration for us, a very clever alliteration, the world versus the word. So our first point this morning, the word of God teaches us to love each and every person as an image bearer of God. The world teaches us to love only those that are an image bearer of us. The way Christ's love was total sacrifice. In in John 13, Jesus is saying, this is how the world will know you. This will be your mark. The mark of a Christian is love. It's not the cross you wear around your neck. It's not the steeple or the pew. It's not the inspirational tattoos on your arms. It's not the Pinterest verses on your kitchen wall. The mark of a Christian is love. There's a book I wanted to recommend. I read it in prep for this. It's called The Mark of the Christian by Francis Schaeffer. And he had, I wanted to read an excerpt of this because he just says it so much better than I can. I believe the words will appear on the screen behind me. And then he closes um, with a scripture passage from the book of John 13. Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in their lapels and their coats. They have hung chains about their necks and even had special haircuts. Of course, there is nothing wrong with any of this if one feels it is his calling. But there is as much a better sign, a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for use on some special occasion or in some specific area. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church until Jesus comes back. What is this mark? At the close of his ministry, Jesus looks forward to his death on the cross, the open tomb, the ascension. Knowing he is about to leave, Jesus prepares his disciples for what is to come. It is here that he makes clear what will be the distinguishing mark of the Christian. And he closes this quote by reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Jesus is taking the command to love, and he's taking it up a notch, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And now he's saying, love one another as I loved you. In prepping for this message, I I asked a number of people, how are you doing at loving people? How's that going? 
How's your love life? No, I didn't ask that. But, <laughs> but how are you at loving people? And I have to tell you, we feel pretty good about our ability to love. We're very confident that we're sweet, loving people. I didn't talk to anyone that said, oh, I've really had a problem with bitterness. I've really had a trouble with hatred. That's not something, that's not a sin we care to admit to, but we search ourselves and we find ways that we're guilty of withholding or denying love. And scripture equates that with hate. And we hate in many ways disdain, exclusion, tribalism, superiority, indifference, and gossip. Those are all active forms of hatred. In verse 12 and 13, John moves to his negative example. He says, we should not be like King Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You know the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers. They each prepared a sacrifice for God. Abel did as God had commanded And his sacrifice was pleasing to God. Cain did not. Cain rather brought a work of his own hands. He brought the fruit of his own efforts. And his sacrifice was rejected by God. He had attempted to worship in an attitude of good works and merit. And his sacrifice was rejected, but Cain doesn't learn from the rejection of his sacrifice. And scripture tells us that is because he lacked faith. And because he lacked faith, his heart was hardened. His anger turned to hate. And his hate turned into our first murder. Scripture says that Cain rose up and killed Abel, or he slew him. And that is a very specific word in the Hebrew. It means to butcher by slitting the throat. Hebrews 11 tells us that it is by faith that Abel brought the better sacrifice. So we can accurately say that what differentiated Abel from Cain was Abel's faith and Cain's lack of faith. In his commentary on the letters of John, author John Stott identifies Cain As a prototype of the world, which still manifests the ugly qualities he first displayed. Do not be like Cain, who is of the evil one. Here the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us you're either one of God's children, or you are, as we all once were, an enemy of God. God does not tolerate neutrality. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. To continue the Cain and Abel theme, you're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. Cain is by his actions proclaiming his spiritual parentage, just as the one who loves proclaims his or her divine parentage. Steve Lawson writes, where there is new life, there will be new love. 
And that truth harmonizes so well with this passage. In verse 15, we read, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hate, it doesn't mean we arrest everyone that hates and charge them with murder. But what, is, what, what we're being taught here is that hate is the beginning of murder as lust is the beginning of infidelity. No murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That Greek is manusan, meno. It's where our word remain comes from. That person does not have eternal life remaining in him. And that is, this, is not a, this is not a sudden, passionate anger if someone cuts you off in traffic or drives 35 in the left-hand lane. But this hate that we allow to dwell in us consume us or abide in us because God does not share spaces if your heart is full of hate it cannot be full of the love of God people are image bearers of God Almighty so who do we presume to be to harbor hateful feelings toward a human of God's creation That's a deliberate sin against the very God we claim to love. We value humanity because it is God's creation and because it brings him glory. Our second point this morning. The word of God tells us that though the world will assuredly hate those who truly believe, a believer loves those who hate them. The world's perspective is that disagreement or disapproval from someone is a hateful action. It is therefore commendable to hate your enemy. So many people today, we feel, and even in the church, we feel as though God exists to grant our wishes and make our lives happy. That we shouldn't have to deal with rejection or hate or hardship because we're a believer. And, you know, God's number one desire is just to see me happy. We fall into that flawed way of thinking. But think back to Cain and Abel. Again, Abel did everything right. He he did everything as God had asked and he pleased God. Yet he was the one that was hated and murdered. God commands us, do not be surprised. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And here... John is no doubt remembering the words of Jesus recorded in John 15 when he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Hates you. That do not be surprised. Me thalmazate is the Greek on that. Thalmazate, to marvel. Not necessarily to be suddenly shocked, but to stand in amazement. May is the negation of that. So, me thalmazate, do not marvel. That's where our word marvel and our word marvelous come from. And this is referring to a state that we may remain in where we may become discouraged or deterred. But it's okay to be 
suddenly shocked by someone's outlash of hate, right? I remember a few weeks ago when the, um, the Roe v. Wade decision came down and the decision was kicked back to the states. I, I could not believe the hateful things I saw said online where um, the social media people were calling for the murder of those that supported this decision. And there was a thread being shared on Twitter. It was reposted hundreds and hundreds of times calling for the pregnancy rape of the children of people that supported this. So that they would have to make a decision on whether or not to terminate a pregnancy. That is evil stuff. And scripture says, do not marvel when the world hates you. Do not get trapped in stunned amazement. The problem is our flesh doesn't like that. We're, we are not about being hated. We, we love to be loved, right? Preaching to myself here. We want the world to love us. We want the world to respect us. To see us as one that should be admired. Unfortunately, so many within the faith today are all too willing to compromise truths of Scripture just to be seen as enlightened. Or even to simply be liked by a hostile world that rejects them. And this desire quickly becomes an idol that we are so tempted to bow down to. The desire to be liked and thought of as, you know... An intellectual equal with the elite. It is an intoxicating drug. But we read that the, that the world will assuredly hate us. We see this in print media, right? We see this in the cancel culture. Where cancel culture teaches that anyone who disagrees must be rejected and silenced. And sadly, the world does not offer redemption for the transgressor. Where the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches that God can save you from any sin, any transgression. You are never too far gone for the love of God. Within our world today, to disobey or contradict the politically correct, woke doctrine of this corrupt age, one will find themselves trapped in a system of eternal scorn. In acquiescing to this corrupt system, one will find an insurmountable to-do list of works necessary for acceptance. That's what virtue signaling is, right? That is the legalism of the world. You do these things, you check off these boxes, and we consider you a good person. And it should also be noted here that the world views these acts of hatred and rejection as for the ultimate good, for the betterment of society. Jesus in John 16 is preparing believers for persecution. John records his words, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Our world today views unconditional love and unconditional affirmation as synonymous. 
And that stands to great and clear contrast to the will of God. God gives us these beautiful, boundless, wonderful gifts and blessings. And then he tells us how to use them. Every sin being committed in the world right now, as we speak, is happening through the misuse of one of God's gifts or blessings. God gives us these gifts, and then he's good enough to give us a 66-book collection of his own writings, his own word. And he tells us exactly how to enjoy these wonderful gifts and blessings. And what happens here? The world looks at that and says, you're trying to take away my freedom. You're trying to take away my choice. You're trying to take away my happiness. The world does not view creation as belonging to God, so they feel no obligation to glorify God in the enjoyment of his creation. And I really shouldn't say enjoyment. I know for so many lost people today, what they want more than enjoyment is just relief or peace. But they are prodded by the world to hate the very creator of the peace that they seek. That peace can only be found in the will of God. And within the will of God, certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And there's no amount of politicians or talk show hosts or celebrities screaming in shrill tones on television or online that will refute that fact. The simple fact that the will of God will remain the only umbrella under which one will find peace. Why does our flesh reject the very laws that grant freedom? When I was 14 years old, my father gifted me with a deer rifle for Christmas. So 30 out 6 stock, laminated stock, scope, it was beautiful. It was one of the greatest gifts I've ever received, if not the greatest gift I've ever received. And my father told me this would have been Christmas of 1988. He said, son, with this wonderful gift, you can have much joy. You can have fun times and great adventures. With this gift, this is a gift you will be blessed to give to your children and your grandchildren. But if you do not heed my instructions, if you do not obey my commands, with this gift you can bring pain and heartbreak, misery, permanent consequences, and even death. And see, that's exactly how it is with God's Gifts. The world likes to look at the Christian church and say, believers, they just want to control people's life. They want to control who can be married. They want to control what gender is. They want to control my behavior. And that's simply not true. It's certainly the source of the hatred, but it's not the truth. Today, whether the location be online or in the public school classroom, the battle is fought over sex, sexuality, and gender. And so today, Christians are hated for their views on sex, sexuality, and gender. And Christians do not desire to control or eliminate sex. God created sex. God hit that one out of the park. God says, with this wonderful gift, you can have much joy. 
Here's how sex is to be beautifully and wonderfully enjoyed. It is between one married man and one married woman. Anything else is a sin and you're placing yourself in danger. If you do not heed my commands with this wonderful gift, you can bring pain and heartbreak and misery and permanent consequences and death. And worse than that, by misusing God's gifts, we fail to bring glory to him. And that's why humanity exists in the first place, to glorify God. Marriage and gender and sexuality, those are things created by God to be enjoyed in the way God has ordained. Anything else will bring hollowness and misery. Lasting joy will become a mirage to which you will never arrive for all of its promises and enticements and excitements. Sin cannot bring lasting joy. You can keep chasing it like the proverbial carrot on the stick. I've chased it. You will find frustration, misery, and emptiness, and no lasting joy. Rejecting God to chase a lawless and fleshly life free from God's world is to slowly build your own prison. And as believers, we want to see those in prison to sin set free. We're not simply trying to convert people to our system of morality. We want to see them set free from the prison of sin. We do not hate. We do not despise. The Christian and the lost person are made out of the exact same sinful flesh. Instead, we desperately want others to feel the freedom that only believers can feel. Sinful lifestyles destroy the image bearer. The suicide rate in the transgender community and in the LGBTQ community is exponentially higher than any other group. Amongst teens in these lifestyles, it skyrockets even above that to almost an epidemic level. And see, that's not freedom. And that's not beauty. Drug use, disease also spike in these lifestyles. And not to mention within the trans community today, there is such a grotesque amount of misinformation fed by pseudoscientists for socio-political gain that someone that is confused, that is searching, is in an uneducated fashion making a decision to mutilate their body. Oftentimes losing bodily functions and nerve sensations forever. There is nothing freeing and beautiful about mutilating your body. There's nothing freeing and beautiful about rejecting God's creation. And there's nothing loving and beautiful about distorting and corrupting Almighty God's holy institutions. I don't know if you've ever known anyone with anorexia and body dysmorphia. I, ha I have. When I was, a, I was a school teacher for three years, and we had a little girl in one of my classes. And when she looked in the mirror, she saw an obese person. This girl was 73 pounds. She was a skeleton. 
Her, she was starving herself. Her, her hair was falling out. Her teeth were falling out. She was every bit of you know, 13 years old. And she was convinced she was obese. And she was dying. What would the loving thing have been to do there? To look at that girl and say, you know, sweetie, whatever you feel like you are inside, that's what you are. If you think you're obese, then you're obese. I affirm your obesity. I stand behind you and your obesity because that's your identity. You identify as obese and I am behind that. That would be to encourage a person to travel down a destructive path. Instead, we as believers, we want to see people healed and set free from the disease, the disease known as sin. And the girl, by the way, was, was healed. By the grace of God, she is married with a bunch of beautiful children and um, does a lot to help other girls now. Yeah, it's beautiful. But she had people that were willing to speak truth to her in her life. She had people that were willing to look at her and say, listen, you are God's precious creation. Yet we, so often in a misguided desire to be liked, we condone destructive behavior in an effort to not offend. And this is where words like grace and love get really thrown around and cheapened and homogenized. And we've all done this, where we say, well, at first when I meet someone, I'm just going to react with grace and love. When sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes what we're saying when we say that is, I'm going to suppress the truth as long as I can so this person will like me. And we must ask ourselves if it is loving and gracious to deny the truth to someone who is dying. Again, we're not trying to convert people to our morality. We are called to, in active obedience, proclaim Jesus Christ. To proclaim the truth, the only truth, to a world that doesn't even believe truth exists. A world that seems to celebrate the destruction of truth. And because of this denial, counterfeit love is the only love some people will ever know. A false and undelivering distortion of God's beautiful gift of love. It is a loving thing to carry God's perfect truth into a world that doesn't even know what truth is. And for it, we will be hated. But in love, we must share. And I want to switch gears for just a moment. And I want to say something. We as believers must fight the temptation to look at those trapped in sin with disdain. To have hatred for someone trapped in a lifestyle of destruction. Some of the worst things I have ever heard said and the dirtiest words were said by people professing to be Christians about some of the same people we're talking about today. Gay slurs, racial slurs, trans slurs come out of the mouths of people that claim to be believers, showing Disdain for an image bearer of God. Hateful, bullying, murderous words. Just used to describe a poor soul trapped in sin. 
So there's nothing loving or gracious about calling someone an ugly name. Our hearts instead are to be focused on that person finding freedom. The Apostle John assures us in his writings that as we endure the scorn of the world, we should have peace that our Savior has already assured the victory. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Our final point today. The word of God tells us that love is sacrificial, focused upwardly to God, then outwardly to humanity, to the ultimate glory of God. And the world tells us that love of self is paramount, focused upon one's personal glory and appeasement. For the believer, the love of Jesus must far surpass the love of self. My Son and my daughter are 21 years old and 17 years old, respectively. And, you know, in the coming years, they're going to be meeting the person that they're going to spend the rest of their life with. They're going to be meeting their wife or their husband. And I don't give my children a lot of dating advice because, quite frankly, they don't listen. But, <laughs> but I don't give them a lot of dating advice. But what, what I do tell them is that you find someone that loves Jesus more than he loves you. You find someone that loves Jesus Christ more than she loves you. You will find a husband that loves his wife so much he is willing to die for her. And you will find a woman that loves and respects her husband. This will be someone that places the good of others in high regard. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is a reference to Jesus' foreshadowing of his coming crucifixion, where in John 15 he says, Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is equating the purest and truest love to the gospel. There is no greater love. There is no truer love. All fleshly loves are counterfeit and that they do not seek to bring glory to God. The gospel is the greatest act of love. Last year, I preached one of my best friend's funerals about a year ago. And it was hard. He was my age. And... Um, I'm back home, and I'm getting my sermon ready, and getting everything where it goes, and thinking of good times, you know, all that kind of stuff you do. And I began to get these rumblings, these messages from people. You know, there's some members of the family, they're really angry and bitter toward God for this. Let's, um, maybe we don't preach Let's just have a celebration of life. Let's just leave the gospel out. Just have a celebration of life. And my friend that had died, his job was he worked for someone that was very famous. And so there's going to be celebrities in the congregation. You know, celebrities, they don't take all this time out of their busy day to hear the gospel preached at them. Let's just have a celebration of life. 
and I felt that, that pull of the, the golden rule of this age, which is thou shalt not offend, right? And I reached out to my, my elders, and I'm so grateful for the 10 men that have served in that position over the years. I reached out to my elders, and I, I told them what was going on, and one of them reached out to me lovingly but firmly to remind me that the gospel is the single greatest act of love in history. Why would, why would you deny that good news to a grieving person? And I did. So I went ahead and saturated the message with the gospel beginning to end. And the Holy Spirit was so faithful. Um, uh, hearts were pre-softened. And we had a beautiful time and sweet remembrances. And, and even some good conversations and questions. Afterward, But I think that this experience is kind of a microcosm for the way the world rejects the gospel. We as Christians sometimes think the gospel is not appropriate. The world doesn't want the gospel. Satan's having a field day in America right now. He doesn't want the gospel being preached. And in love, we must take the good news, the only good news of Jesus Christ. To the world, we must. If we don't, we're simply not being loving. Verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The literal translation from the Greek for closes his heart is actually closes his bowels. That's why I went to seminary, so I could learn about <laughs> Greek bowels. But yes, closes his bowels. And what, what this is referring to is an inner guttural rejection of a brother or sister. But our love for one another must move us to give of our resources, our money, our times, our, our time, our talents. We share our blessings, whether they be material or the very blessing that is our salvation. How unloving and how cruel is it to withhold this from another? And the gospel may be offensive to hear that while you were a sinner whose works deserve nothing more than hell, Christ walked this earth sinlessly. He was betrayed and executed and he stood before God and he did so. With the sin of every believer, past, present, and future cast upon him, that he would bear God's wrath until its completion. When the believer stands before God in judgment, it is with the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Rather than the penalty for our sin, to spend an eternity in God's grace rather than an eternity under God's wrath. Our final verse, verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Notice that's not deed or truth. We're commanded to do both. Indeed, not, not just that, that type of person that pays lip service to everyone. The outward expression of love. But rather a love that comes from inside. And to love in truth 
That's exactly what we've been talking about. The true gospel. A truth that we do not hide out of fear or embarrassment, but we proclaim boldly and joyfully. In truth, we don't, we're not compromising the message to make it more palatable. As society kind of turns its back on God, people find themselves in misery. Last year, there were 85,253 self-help titles available on Amazon by false teachers and heretics and some people that are openly and proudly godless. There are so many false faiths and false hopes. Back to my 80s music theme. Whitney Houston once sang, Learning to love yourself, it is the greatest love of all. And though Miss Houston sang the greatest national anthem in Super Bowl history, she is completely wrong there. Learning to love yourself is not the greatest love of all. And that's really, really good news. Scripture implores us to take the focus off of ourselves and to glorify God, our creator. Alistair Begg says it better than I do, and he does it with a Scottish accent. And he says that contrary to public opinion, the key to loving others does not lie in loving ourselves, but in loving God. How do we distinguish these counterfeit loves, these counterfeit hopes from the only true hope? I read an article one time about uh, these government agents and their whole job was to um, identify counterfeit money. That was all they did. And they were great at it. They could find the most minute um, difference between the original true bill and the forgery. But what amazed me was the way they trained for this, for this job. They, they did not study counterfeit money. They didn't look at it at all. All they did was they took the only true currency and they kept it in front of them and they studied it. They poured over every detail, as many nuances of that as they could get into their brain. They studied it so that when something that was false, that was not right, was put in front of them, they knew immediately. We do not need to study the false faiths and the false hopes of the world in order to identify them. We only need to study the one and only truth and the one and only hope, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you do not, you do not know this peace-giving hope, my prayer is that you will soon find one of our church members. We have wonderful church members here. They would love to talk about the gospel with you or just talk about life with you. Ask them. They'll tell you more. In closing, I want to read Romans 12, verses 9 through 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let's pray together.